All right, this is Steve Strauss. He was a missionary in Ethiopia. And in 1991, uh, there was a revolution in Ethiopia. And what happened was that uh, the democratic government that exists now, that government took over in 1991. And while Strauss was there ministering to a group of students there in Ethiopia, they were actually living under this genocidal government that was currently there. So Strauss is, is there with his wife and his two kids, and it was not uncommon for bullets to be whizzing by his head and uh, near where his family lived. So uh, he thought, maybe this isn't the best place for my wife and kids. Maybe I should get them out of here. So what he did was he sent his wife and kids to a place of relative safety, but he himself stayed because it was his desire to undergo or to suffer whatever fate it was that awaited his students. He loved his students that much that he wanted to be with them to suffer whatever it was that happened to them. Well, thankfully, it turned out well. The coup was successful, and uh, they established this democratic form of government. Well, Steve Strauss said when he was there, and he said continually, like one of his mantras of life was, be prepared to pray at any time, to preach at any time, and to die at any time. And Strauss lived out that life. In 2012, he had become a professor of Dallas Seminary, he was the professor there, and he was diagnosed at that time with pancreatic cancer. And of course, that is a devastating diagnosis. And uh, being a student there at the time, I watched this man suffer greatly. But we would have chapel every day, and as uh, the music would play, Strauss, to the best of his ability, would stand up, and he would raise his hands and praise the Lord his God as best as he possibly could with all the energy that he had with all his might, and uh, it's something I will never forget. As the months went by, you know, the weight just kind of fell off of him, his clothes were hanging off of him, and towards the end, he barely had enough strength to even get to chapel, but when he was there, he's raising his hand, he's standing as he's able, and he's praising God right to the end. And so Strauss died in 2013, and what he taught me that I will never forget is how to glorify God even in death. Right? There, there is a way to die, and he taught me how to do it. And I pray that when, it, when it's my time, that I do it glorifying God half as well as he did. He was an inspiration in, in teaching us how to, to go forward into the struggles that we're going to have in life. Now, this is something that Strauss didn't want, obviously, but when trouble came his way, he was not afraid to die for his Lord, and he glorified his Lord every step of the way. There was a guy who lived in the first century who did the same thing. His name was Paul. Paul did the same thing, glorifying God, following God wherever God led. And remember last week, we talked a lot about the struggles and the suffering that Paul had undergone. And he was only in the eye of the hurricane. He was about halfway through the life that God had, the Christian life anyway, that God had given to him. He had experienced lots of trials in the past, and we talked about those as we ran through the, the uh, issues that he had in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 all the suffering, all the pain that he went through, but he gained perspective in that suffering. Remember, we learned that last week, was that the suffering came so that Paul would come to rely not on himself, but on God, who raises the dead. And knowing that, after he learned that lesson, after he had gotten that, well, then he was able to receive comfort from God and then give comfort to others because he understood God's purpose for his suffering and he gained the perspective that he needed to go forward into whatever it was going to be that God was going to have for him. And God had more stuff for him, as we know. There was plenty more left to come for Paul in his life. He, was only, he had another eight to ten years to live uh, from the point that we're talking about here. 
but the perspective that he received prepared him for how he was going to go and minister the rest of the way. So we're coming to this passage now in Acts chapter 20, and Paul has been doing a lot of moving around, so I'm just going to give us a little bit of a travelogue. I don't know if you can see that map very well. But how we get to this part of, in Acts chapter 20, where we're looking at today, starting at verse 17, Paul's in this place called Miletus, and it's this little place right here in Asia Minor. Now, he had been in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. That's where he was, and he ministered to this church in Ephesus for a period of three years. And at the end of that three-year period, uh, Paul got himself in a little bit of hot water with these pagan people in Ephesus, because he was making Christian converts. And the merchants of Ephesus were not too happy about that because these people who used to buy the trinkets that the merchants used to make were now Christian converts and they weren't buying these pagan idols anymore. They were asking Paul, where can I get a copy of the Bible? You know, that's what they were, they were wanting anymore. Uh, so what happened was that he, he started to, to have a bit of an uprising against him. They were accusing him of being a blasphemer, first of all, but really what was motivating the whole thing was that they were, he, he was taking away their livelihood by making these Christian converts. And so there was a riot in the temple of Diana, and Paul eventually had to, had to run. He had to leave uh, Ephesus because there was, there was a lot of danger for him. And so he went on, and Paul started in Ephesus, and you see this orange arrow is kind of how he did this missionary journey into Macedonia, he wrote 2 Corinthians, which we studied last week, in Macedonia, probably from Thessalonica right here. He continued down into Corinth, spent some time there. He wrote Romans from Corinth, and then he turned around and retraced his steps as we get into Acts 20 through Troas and then back to this place of Miletus where he currently is, and this is, this is the setting for where our story begins. <clears throat> now, Paul says specifically in verse 20, I'm sorry, 20 verse 16, that he wants to bypass Ephesus. He doesn't want to stop there because he wants to get back to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. And if he knows that if he stops in Ephesus, it's his church, three years he spent there, he's going to be delayed there and he's trying to, he's in a hurry, he's trying to get back. But he calls to the Ephesian elders and you can see that Ephesus is right here. It's about 30 miles north of Miletus, so it's fairly close. And so what he wants to do is gather these elders to himself and, and talk to them. So he's here in Miletus, and he's in the eye of a hurricane. He's got all this suffering behind him, but he's headed to Jerusalem, where a lot more suffering awaits. The second half of the storm is coming. And what we're going to see in this passage is that Paul faithfully pastored in his past ministry, and that Paul fearlessly pursued his future mission, and then our response, which is to follow purposefully what God commands. That's what we want to do in light of these things. So let's start off. We're going to read verses 17 to 21. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so the first thing Paul wants to do is he wants to gather these elders to himself. Paul pastored this church for three years, 
and this church was very important to him. There was no other church that he spent this amount of time in. And so Ephesus was kind of the crown jewel of the churches that Paul established. And Paul knows that he's not going to be with this church anymore. And so he wants to give instruction to the elders who are in this church because the elders are now going to be responsible for the well-being of the people in the congregation. And so he wants to remind them of a couple of things. And let's see what those things are. The first thing that Paul reminds them of when they gather, he, remember, this is a 30-mile hike, so he sends a message to these people. They have to walk up there. They have to walk back. There's no subway or anything that takes them there, so this is a hike. They're, they're, they're on their mules or they're on their feet. So 30 miles up, 30 miles back, it's probably a four-day period before he's able to give this message of what he wants to remind them of. And the first thing he wants to remind them of is that a faithful pastor serves the people. And Paul wants to talk to them about how he served the people while he was with them at this church uh, in Ephesus where he was. So that's why he says in verse 18 how he wants to remind them, saying that you know that I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with trials. Now, that little verse there is an incredible model of how we are supposed to serve each other, right? He was there with these people in Ephesus, giving his whole self. That means he didn't parse out half of himself and say, I'm gonna give you half of me and I'm gonna hold half of you back, half of myself back for me. No, he gave all of himself. He served them wholeheartedly uh, with everything he had. He served them in humility. Now, humility is kind of a buzzword in Christianity these days. We, we hear a lot of people talk about humility and sometimes I think we don't even know what it is. We put ourselves down, right, and we think that that's being humble. That's not what being humble is. Hum humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less so that you have the ability to not have concerns about what's, what the effect of this may be on you. You're just going to go and serve the people whatever they need when it's convenient, but particularly when it's not convenient. That's when we go out and we serve in humility, putting others before ourselves. Paul also served these people in tears. Why? Why is Paul crying? Why, why is Paul sad? Because he serves his whole, he gives his whole self. This mission is so important to him. He lays his life on the line for this mission every day of his life. And when people don't properly respond, that's a cause for tears. So some people wouldn't believe. And some people believed, but they were really immature. And so that's why you have uh, him writing in 1 Corinthians. Some follow Paul, some follow Apollos, some follow Jesus. D did Paul die for you? Did Apollos die for you? No, you follow Jesus. And they were immature. They couldn't understand that. So that brought him to tears. And then there was the, always the danger of these false teachers arising among them. Uh, that happened all the time in his churches. When you, when you think back through the travelogue of Acts, the Jews were constantly on his heels trying to undo everything that he had done in the places that he had been. So <clears throat> he's got these false teachers, he's got immature people, and he's got unbelievers. And this is a cause of great grief for him. And so this causes him to cry over the people that he loves so very much. And he also serves the Lord in trials. And if we were to do a flyover of the book of Acts and just follow Paul's life, we can see that Paul had trouble behind him and he had trouble in front of him. Wherever he went, trouble was not far away from him. In Acts chapter 9, they were going to kill him in Damascus. In Acts chapter 13, he had to run out of Antioch Pisidian because of the trouble that awaited him there. He fled in uh, Acts chapter 14 from Iconium. 
In Acts chapter 17, Berea and Thessalonica, they plotted against him. In Acts chapter 18, they were going to kill him in Corinth. And in Acts chapter 19 and 20, they were plotting against him in Ephesus. And so those are all the cities that Paul was in where he awaited trials. And we saw last week how he just served the Lord in all these trials and served each other. And so isn't this a model for us as well? When we talk about service, it's not service when it's convenient for us. It's not love when it's convenient for us. It's wholehearted love in humility with the pain of tears when people don't respond and with the trials that come our way as a result of whatever difficulties come because we've put ourselves out there uh, as Christians. We know that there, there will be trouble if we do that from time to time. So Paul demonstrates these things. He also, the second thing that he wanted to remind them of is first that he serves the people, but a good pastor also teaches sound doctrine. <clears throat> so let's read verses 20 and 21 again. He says, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul had a lot of courage, right? Paul did not shrink back from difficulty. He knew that people were going to be wherever he was opposing him, but that didn't bother him at all. He just went about preaching the gospel. That was what his commission was to do. So he understands that he's got to teach sound doctrine, even though it might get him in trouble. And a good pastor has to not only serve, but he has to teach sound doctrine. So if you serve people, that's a wonderful thing, and we ought to serve people. But if we don't couple that with sound doctrine, all we have is good deeds. No one gets saved. No one gets discipled. Nobody grows in their spiritual walk. On the other hand, if all we do is teach sound doctrine, but we don't do anything nice for anybody, all we're doing is we're transmitting this head knowledge, which has no effect on anybody. So we want to serve people, or else we're going to be like Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians. He says, if I have love, or I'm sorry, if I have all knowledge and yet have not love, I'm nothing but a clanging gong or a banging cymbal. And who wants to be that? So that, that's not good for anybody. He wants to be both. So he wants to serve them through uh, his service and also through this sound doctrine. So he wants to teach them about profitable things. Now, there are a lot of profitable things that can be taught, right? But Paul gets right to the heart of the matter. And what he wants to, them to know is that when I was there in Ephesus, I was teaching them about faith, or I'm sorry, repentance and faith. That's the gospel. That's what he's talking about when he says repentance and faith. Repentance is this word metanoia in the Greek, and it simply means to change your mind. Just to change your mind. That's all it means. And, and so Paul is saying, I want you people to change your minds. What does he want them to change their minds about? Well, these Jews, wherever he traveled, believed in a salvation by works of the law. And Paul is saying to them, that's not how you're saved. So change your mind from a belief in repentance in works of the law to repentance, or to faith in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So change your mind, repentance to faith. And so that was his message, and that's the gospel in a nutshell, right? Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's the profitable thing that Paul is going about teaching wherever he went. And he was not afraid to teach anywhere to anybody. He taught to Jews, he taught to Greeks, that's everybody. And he would teach anywhere. He would go to places like, he says, publicly. One of the public places he taught was in the house of Tyrannus in Ephesus. What does the word Tyrannus sound like? What, what word do you think we get from that word? <laughs> Tyrant, right? Uh, this is a philosophical house of higher learning, and Paul goes in there with his message of the gospel, and these Greeks were saying, 
you know, what are you talking about, right? They had no idea what he was talking about. But he went in there by himself, right? He doesn't have this huge following of people who are like, yes, go Paul, you know, we believe what you're saying. Paul went by himself into these places and he would go into institutions of higher learning and, and just say the message. So he would go to places like that and he could get an audience in places like that, but he was not above door-to-door -door evangelism, right? I went from door-to-door. -door. I would teach people publicly and privately. He would knock on mom and pop's door and preach the gospel to them. He'd go to the next house, preach the gospel to them. So he would do it anywhere, to anybody, at any time. And this is how Paul taught sound doctrine. He taught sound doctrine wherever he went, and he served the people wherever he went. And that is the model for how we're supposed to act towards each other. Well, now remember that he is talking to these Ephesian elders. That's his audience. So why is he giving them this message? Why is it important that Paul impart this knowledge to him before he goes to Jerusalem? Well, he's passing the torch. He knows, he's going to say in a few verses, I know you will never see my face again. And so he's got to impart this knowledge and wisdom to the elders because now they are going to be responsible for the well-being of the church. And that hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Your elders are responsible for the well-being of the people in, in this congregation. That's what elders do. And so Paul wants to instruct these people who are going to be responsible for the care of the people in the church so that when he's gone, he knows that he has made proper provision for the people in the church. And this is what we do when we write a last will and testament. When we do that, what are we saying? We, we are saying, I love the people I'm leaving behind and here is how I want them taken care of. And so we, we give our executor this uh, ability, this wisdom, and this power to take care of our affairs the way we want it done so that our assets and so that the people we love are taken care of. And Paul does this with uh, his people. He's making provision for them. So you have Paul here. He's standing in this eye of the hurricane. He knows he's off to Jerusalem, and yet he's making provision for the people that he loves. And so he pastored faithfully in the past, and now we're going to see that Paul uh, fearlessly pursues his future mission. And we're going to see this in Acts chapter 20 uh, and verses 22 to 24. Okay, so let's read that. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and ministry, which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. So there's the gospel again. That's what he's doing. He's going about preaching this word. The first thing that we see here is that Paul accepts the authority of the Holy Spirit. We see that in verse 23. Paul <clears throat> says that he's bound, but he's not physically bound, is he? He's bound in a different kind of way. Usually when you see this word bound in the New Testament, it means that you're physically tied up and you're being transported someplace against your will. That's not what Paul was undergoing here. Paul was bound in a different kind of way. And so if you're not physically bound, that means you have a choice to make. Paul could have chosen to follow the Holy Spirit, or he could have chosen to run in the other direction. Now, when you hear about that, God speaking to somebody, and that's somebody running in the opposite direction, anybody come to mind? Jonah, yeah. Jonah gets this message from God, go and preach this message of repentance in Nineveh. And what does Jonah do? He's like, 
I'm out of here, right? He was gone as fast as he could be. He ran as far as he could in the other direction until by God's providence, he ends up in the belly of a fish until he's ready to repent. That's probably pretty good, you know, pretty good convincing. Uh, God, if you let me out of the belly of this fish, all right, I'll go do what you want me to do. And so the fish spits him out. Jonah does what God prepares him to do. But Paul, he's bound by the Holy Spirit. Jonah was not bound by the Holy Spirit. So Often in Paul's letters, you see him calling himself a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's no surprise that Paul actually goes forward into the danger that may be coming. So he's got this choice, and and Paul being a bondservant is one who follows. But Paul also counted the cost of what it was going to be like to follow Jesus. He, and we see that in verses 22 and 23. He's bound by the Holy Spirit in the sense that he's obligated to go. But he says, look, I do not consider my life of any account, his life on the one hand, versus the mission that he's been given on the other hand to testify solemnly of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's weighing his life versus the value of completing his mission. And it's a no contest for him. He's like, my my life is worth nothing compared to the ministry that I've been given to finish what it is that God has for me. So Paul says uh, in his mind, come what may, I obey. Come what may, I obey. When, when, when God calls us, we don't debate, we don't argue with God, we just follow God wherever he leads us. And so from this eye of the storm, Paul taught these uh, elders discipleship and, and training them for what was going to be coming. Now, Paul is off to Jerusalem himself, and he's going to face trouble there. But what these Ephesian elders don't know is that they're going to face trouble themselves. And what Paul is going to say in a few verses is that even among your own congregation, ravenous wolves are going to arise and they're going to disturb and try to disperse this congregation. So Paul is telling them about suffering, his own suffering, but he's also preparing these Ephesian elders for their own suffering and their own trials that are coming as well. So they need to be prepared for that. They are going to be entering into their own time of testing. Now, we don't rush into trials with smiles on our faces, right? We don't wake up in the morning and say, I wonder how I can go and get myself in a whole lot of trouble today for preaching the word. But sometimes trouble follows the word. And sometimes God has a trial ahead of us because he's going to teach us something in the trial. So on September 11th, 2001, we were living in New Jersey at that time. We were about 10 miles outside of Manhattan. And when the planes hit the Twin Towers, you could see the smoke rising up from lower Manhattan from where we lived. When those planes hit, everybody, of course, ran for their lives in the other direction, right? Running from the danger, and that's what any regular person would do, right? But not the first responders, the police, the fire department, the medics, the ambulances, even the clergy rushed to the buildings to do what their act of service was to do. This is Father Mike Judge. Mike Judge gave me my first communion in 1973 in St. Joseph's Church in Carlstadt, New Jersey. And Mike Judge was a great guy. Uh, Later in life, he became a chaplain to the New York City Fire Department. And when the planes hit the building, Mike Judge ran to the buildings. And he was there in the North Tower lobby, ministering to the people, to the first responders and to the injured, uh, when, when that chaos was going on. And he was standing there in the building. In fact, this picture that you see on your right is, is a picture of Father, Father Mike Judge praying, Lord, please stop this. Please end this, what's going on here. 
And Mike Judge was there praying for, for the people. And he was there in the North Tower when the building came down. He was victim number 001, the first confirmed casualty, the first confirmed death of the 9-11 attacks. And he was doing what God called him to do, running to the storm that God had called him to and ministering in the storm, like Paul, considering his life of no value compared to the mission that God had given him. Paul, Steve Strauss, Mike Judge, all had this in common. They trusted their Lord. They went where their Lord called them. And when trouble came, they knew that God was already there waiting for them in the trouble, right? And don't we know the same? Like if we're called to something, we know that God is there when we go into the trouble. God is going to be there for us. He's going to be waiting there for us. Sometimes we forget that. We think we're trying to get ourselves out of whatever it is, not realizing that God is already there in the trouble waiting for us. Paul and Steve Strauss and Mike Judge all had that in common. They trusted God in their trials. So when God calls, we obey. We go where God calls us. Um, when we moved from New Jersey to Texas, we were really, really excited about this new phase in our lives and all, all this great stuff that we were uh, excited to do. God calling me to seminary and, and where was God going to take that and who knew what was going to happen. But it was a really exciting new chapter of our lives. And we prepared for certain eventualities. We knew that there was going to be some difficulty and we prepared as best we could for the things that we thought might happen. But as you know, whenever you lay plans, some things happen that you can't possibly anticipate. And so what happened to me that I was not anticipating was that I was not going to be able to manage my law firm as well as I wanted to from Texas. And so there was a, a time of great trial as we were trying to work out how that was going to go. And things continued to go from bad to worse. And uh, it, it was a, a really difficult time. And, and what ended up happening was that uh, I slipped into what I would call a deep, dark depression, a dark night of the soul that lasted for a very long time, like nearly a year before I was able to pull myself out of this thing. What's not really important is how I got there. What's really important is what I learned while I was there, because God uses everything. And so what I learned when I was there was that I am a weak and broken man, and I am not as powerful or as strong as I thought I might be or as I'd hoped I would be. I'm just not, that's not who I am. I learned that. I learned that my marriage is so strong. Um, you know, your marriage sometimes is, you don't know how strong it is until it's really tested. And that was a, a time in our lives where Molly stood by me, stood by me at a difficult, difficult time. And that was great. I learned that people are broken. And if you look around, you'll see hurting people. And you have to love those people even when they're difficult people, right? Not everybody is, is lovable, but we love them anyway. I learned that people have, have difficulty that I don't understand. People didn't understand my depression. You know, what are you depressed about? I, I could explain it to you, but if you haven't been there, you, you wouldn't understand it. And I look out over a group of people here who may be going through things that I don't understand, but I would never minimize or underestimate what you're going through just because I haven't walked in those shoes. Now that I've walked through what I've walked through, I learned to minister with my head and with my heart. When I was a lawyer, people come into my office, you know, I got this problem, okay? Uh, do this, 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 and this, and your problem will be solved. That's, that's head ministry. But pastoral ministry is head knowledge and heart knowledge, where we learn to love with all of ourselves like Paul did. 
And so I learned that that's what it takes to be a faithful minister. And I learned most of all that God was with me in that trial. He was with me the entire way. And so God uses everything and God used that right up to this very moment that here I am standing before you ministering as best as I can from the word of God because he taught me in my time of trial how you're supposed to do that. And so I'm learning, but uh, God has certainly used it. As Paul said, God allows hardships so that we will come not to rely on ourselves, but rely on God who raises the dead. And that's what ministry is all about. That's what God's call is all about. And it's not just for pastors. It's for each and every one of us. All of us are called to do this. So what is our response to these things? We follow purposefully what God commands. We follow purposefully what God commands. How do we do that? Well, it's not a passive following where, you know, we just sit back and, and, and whatever happens, you know, we, we, we just let it happen to us. We purposefully follow what God commands. When God tells us to do something, we don't debate, we don't argue with God, we don't come up with the, God, here's a better plan, have you thought through this one? That's not how we do it. We say when God calls, we obey. We simply come what may, we obey. Uh, so the first way we do it is that when God asks us to stay, we serve each other well. That's what we're called to do. We're going to be called to be in a certain place for a certain period of time, and while we're there, we simply serve each other well. Now, Paul was this incredible theologian, and we know that. You know, he wrote the book of Romans. You can't do that if you're a theological lightweight, right? The, the theology is, is defined by the book of Romans. So Paul was this incredible theologian, but he was also this incredible pastor, and sometimes that gets overshadowed because of the incredible theology how much he loved his people, how he cried for his people, how he tried so hard to bring them to a saving faith in the Lord. These were the marks of his ministry. You know, as he's standing in Miletus, he could have been fretting about what was going to happen to him as he's about to go off to Jerusalem, but that was the last thing on his mind. What was on his mind is, how do I make provision for these people that I'm leaving behind? Because he's giving himself to them wholeheartedly in humility with trials and tears. And this should be our model as well. <clears throat> well, by now, you know that I am candidating to be the senior pastor here. And I know that you know that none of you wanted this. I know that this is not what you wanted. You wanted Carl to go on forever. And I appreciate that because you love Carl. And I've come to know Carl and, and love Carl as well. I don't know why God has other plans for this church. I, I don't know. Uh, we're, we're just walking where God would have us walk. I'll tell you this, uh, this is my pledge to you. Uh, following Jesus' model, following Paul's model, uh, I'm going to do just what I said in the, in the beginning of this message, is that I'm going to teach sound doctrine from this book, and I'm going to serve you as best as I can, as best as the Holy Spirit will allow. That is my role, if you call me as pastor here, that's what I intend to do, uh, to love you with, with all my heart as best as I possibly can. We're going to stand alongside Carl and Kathy. I'm going to love them just as you're going to love them, and I know that you're going to be here for them, and I'm going to be there for them too. So we serve each other, and that's, that's what we do. We do that while we're here. While we're here, while we're called to stay, this is what we do. We serve and we love each other well. But sometimes we're going to be called to go, right? We may be called as individuals to go. We may be called to go across the world on the other side of the world, or we may be called to go across the street. Uh, whatever God calls us to do, we're, we're supposed to do that. So we, we come what may, we obey. When God calls us, come what may, we obey. 
Uh, if we're called to go across the street, we go across the street. If we're called to go around the world, we go around the world, whatever he asks us to do. Now, what's that going to look like in a changing culture? You may have noticed over the past several years of your Christian walk that the, the world is not as uh, nice to Christians as it used to be. And Christianity, which was once admired and followed, became something that was eh, tolerated, I'd say. And now it's, it, people are openly hostile to it. It's persecuted. It's mocked. It's scorned. It's kicked out of our schools. We can't mention God. That's the trajectory of Christianity in our culture. How are we going to respond to that? What would Paul do? Paul would say, let's go forward. We go forward, we preach the word, we serve each other well, and we teach sound doctrine. And so that's what we're supposed to do. Now, in this changing culture, is it, is it unfathomable to you that given the changes we've seen in the last 40 to 50 years, that in the next 40 to 50 years, we could actually be physically abused, beaten, killed for our faith in this country? Is that impossible? I don't think so. I think that could happen. Uh, and so what do we need to do? We need to be prepared. We need to know this book. We need to know what we believe. We need to train up the next generation of people. Uh, I'm going to encourage you this morning by telling you all that you're probably not going to be here in 30 to 40 years. You're probably all going to be gone just like I'm going to be gone. Uh, so just a little bit of encouragement for you this morning. <laughs> well, some of you will be here. My children will be here. But maybe, I, maybe I'll be gone. Who knows? Um, but look, we have to train up this next generation of people because when we're gone, if we don't have a people in place who are going to carry this torch, like Paul passed the torch onto the Ephesian elders, what's going to happen? Uh, the world is going to overrun them, and they're going to overrun Christianity in our country. So come what may, we obey, we go forward, and th you know, that could happen anywhere. So what I want to say to you is, is that my passion is uh, to, to help people experience the life change that comes from a, a walk with Jesus. Most of you have heard my story by now. I'm a later convert to Christianity, and the life change that's happened to me has just been incredible, and I want others to experience that as well. And that may happen in this building. That may happen in Garland. That may happen around the world. I have no idea where that may happen, but it doesn't really matter where it happens. Our role is to fulfill the Great Commission. And so wherever we're called to do it, that's where we do it. So we're going to train up the next generation. We're going to run into uncertainty. We're going to run into places where we have doubt, trusting that the Lord is with us every step of the way because he is our rock. So we're not going to march forward. Or we're not going to shrink away. We're going to march forward. Come what may, we obey. All right, let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this incredible passage that just shows us so much about how we are to respond in the face of difficulty, in the face of trials. Lord, you are there in the trial. And Lord, if we would just trust you and march forward step by step, even though we know, like Paul, that we're not told anything except that difficulty awaits, yet you are there, Lord. And if you are there, where else would we rather be than where you are? So, Lord, we thank you for the trials because it's through trials that spiritual growth occurs. And we would never trade the spiritual growth uh, to not have had the trial. The trial is hard, but the growth is so worth it, Lord. And so we thank you for all that you are doing in our lives. We thank you for all that you're doing in this church, Lord. And uh, we're just thankful to be a part of seeing you in motion and watching how you move. Lord, we, we ask for your blessings on the big decisions that this church has upcoming in the next several weeks. Lord, uh, guide them well, and Lord, we just pray these things in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.